Well, good morning. Hey, good, good to hear. It's always exciting to be back up here and share about our amazing God. Um, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm especially excited to be a part of the series we're currently in, as it has a lot to do with what God is doing here and is looking to do here at Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church. Now, uh, for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, whether that's through because you're online or you're, it's, it's new here in person, I'm, I'm Steve, and I am the Associate Pastor of Discipleship here at Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church. Now, this morning, I want to share with you why we're doing the Marks of Spiritual Maturity sermon series, as well as unpacking the second mark of maturity, Jesus-like love, as a part of our sermon this morning. Now, as a way to introduce you to why we're doing this March of Spiritual Maturity series, imagine with me for a moment that one day a 10-year-old comes up to you and they ask you this question that's like been on their heart and they've been wrestling with it for a while and it comes out to you as their parent and they say this, what does it mean to be mature? How would you answer now, what I would really love to do is have all of you turn to each other and actually start talking about that, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, but think about this. I think if we were, I think we would discover some things together. First, I think we would discover that we use the idea of being mature or maturing in a lot of different ways, don't we? And some are a lot easier to define than others. For example, physical maturity. There are clear and observable markers when somebody is growing up and maturing physically. Now, we can also use maturity to describe how old someone is. So, say for example, a kid of five or six, uh, they were to see a teenager who's 16 and can drive, and they would see them as much more mature than they are. However, you ask the teen's parents, and they might recognize that there's still maturing to be done on the process towards adulthood. Now, I've got to point out, we already blurred the lines a little bit when we're talking about maturity, right? It's, we just shifted a little bit even from physical maturity. See, after all, if, if a teen still acts like and treats others like a four-year-old, even though they might be mature physically, have they matured emotionally and socially. And so when we start branching out and thinking about maturity in terms like actions, attitudes, emotions, knowledge, appropriate responsibility, relationships with friends and family, we begin to realize that a lot of things go into this picture of someone who's maturing. And in reality, I think we come to this. We use the idea of maturity in a lot of different ways. Now, consider for a moment, what if that 10-year-old, instead of asking the question, what does it mean to be mature, asked about maturity a little bit like this. When will I be an adult? Or when will I be a man instead of a boy? Or a grown woman instead of a girl? Now, again, if we were to do like I wish we would do in the first question, is we turn and talk to somebody else, I think we would find that while there's some beliefs about maturity that we hold in common, like, for instance, in the United States, there's a definition of being legally an adult at age 18. 
I think if we were to get down on to the individual level, we would realize that there's a variety of opinions that we have about maturity. Now, for instance, it might sound a little bit like this. You might be an adult when, and start filling in the blank. So you might be an adult when you get a job. You might be an adult when you move out of the house. You might be an adult when you're married or when you have kids. Or perhaps thinking in terms of attitudes and responsibilities, when you take ownership of your own taxes, or when you pay your own cell phone bill. And the list can keep going and going and going. And this means that while there's some common markers of someone who is maturing that a group might have in common, when we start talking about it a little bit more on an individual level, we might find that there's a lot of differences in what we mean by when we say someone is mature and what markers we look to as growth in maturity. And I think we can say the same is true when it comes to spiritual maturity, which leaves us with the question of how do we lead others to maturity if we don't have a common definition of what we mean when we talk about spiritual maturity? Now, as elders and as a strategy team, we recognize that any definition of spiritual maturity must flow out of God's definition that he has revealed to us through the Bible. We also recognize in order to move towards spiritual maturity, we need to be able to have markers along the way to pay attention to the growth that is happening spiritually in our lives, as well as to shoot for as we continue to mature. This means that we realized we need to have clear definitions of what we here at GREFC are talking about when we're talking about spiritual maturity. So the heart of this series is to share what we at GREFC are aiming for when we're talking about bringing others to maturity and maturing ourselves. Now, through lots of time, prayer, and conversation, these are the five markers that we felt are critical parts of spiritual maturity for us here at GREFC. And as you can see, they're up on the screen. But as you look at those, there's a couple things you, you do need to know. First, while we state that these are markers, we recognize that maturing in them is a process. And a process that will never fully end until we see Jesus face to face which means we are all on this journey and we will always be growing in these areas. And we also recognize we mustn't stall out in these, but want to bring others along with us as we continue to mature, becoming more and more like Jesus. Now here's the second thing we want you to know. These markers are not something, they're not just something the staff and the pastors created. And as a result, they can be expected to change when pastors or staff leave or change. These markers are something that flows out of the leadership and vision of the elders, and as such is something that the elders want to see carried forward and built into the DNA of the church. And so as a visual example of this, several of the elders are preaching as a part of this series because it's on their hearts and minds too. So with all of that in mind for the series, let's pray and let's jump in this morning on Jesus Like Love. 
Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you are so good that you pursue us. I thank you that we get to be here this morning with each other. And I thank you more and more that you have given us Jesus to show us who you are. Father, help us to keep falling in love with you and change us. Help us to grow in Jesus like love. Just pray this in your name. Amen. Now, last week, Dan kicked us off by sharing about how intimacy with God is important for, affects, and marks growth in spiritual maturity. Today, we're going to be focusing on the marker of Jesus like love. Now, in a moment, we're going to look at a few places in the Bible where Jesus himself talks about the importance of loving like him. And these are going to be found in John 13 through 17. However, before we even go there this morning, even really unpacking what Jesus-like love really looks like, we need to deal with an even more fundamental question. Here's the question. Does loving more and more like Jesus matter? Now, if it is truly a mark of growing spiritual maturity, if Jesus-like love is truly a mark, then this question also touches on the issue of if it really matters if we're growing spiritually or not. So how we answer the question of does loving more and more like Jesus matter also gives us reasons to why growing up spiritually does or does not matter. Now, I want to recognize this. Because we're all here this morning, whether physically here or online, and regardless of if we've given our hearts to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, or if we haven't yet, I believe that everyone in this room and online would answer something like this. Does loving more and more like Jesus matter? I think there would be a wholehearted, yeah. And that is good. But we can't stop with just a simple yes or no to this question. We need to keep going and deal with the question of why. Why does loving more and more like Jesus matter? And guess what? God doesn't leave us hanging to just kind of figure this out on our own. See, Jesus, the night before he dies on the cross, gives us his answer in his longest recorded conversation with his disciples from John 13 through 17. In fact, this answer is so important to Jesus that he drives home the point over and over again and across the entire span of these five chapters in the book of John. And what we find are two intertwined answers that flow right out of the heart of Jesus. Now, I want to recognize for this morning, we're only going to look at a few spots within those chapters where Jesus talks about this today. Because, you've got to be honest, we also need to unpack what does Jesus-like love look like. So because of that, I would encourage you this week to go and read John 13 through 17 all together in one sitting and listen to what Jesus shares to his disciples about this in totality. Now, you have to see something else. Both of these two intertwined answers have a foundation that we have to recognize. Here's the foundation. Jesus-like love flows from and is based on our intimacy with God. In fact, 
Without intimacy with God, Jesus-like love is impossible. Now, you might go, okay, why? And here's here's the answer. Because first and foremost, Jesus-like love matters because the more we know him and his love intimately, the more the love that flows out of us ends up being his love and not our own. See, we love like him, not like us. And I gotta be honest, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Now, if you're a student here, you might recognize this verse because it's the foundation verse for our student ministries. It's 1 John 4.19. It says this, We love because he first loved us. Jesus-like love flows from an intimate relationship with him. And I would encourage you, for more of what that intimacy looks like and how to step into it, check out last week's sermon. But we need to see that as a foundation. So with that as a foundation, let's look at these two intertwined answers that help us answer this question. Does loving more and more like Jesus matter? Now, in a recent blog post, Pastor James Emery White shared one of his discoveries when he and his team were looking to church plants in the early 1990s. And in preparation for church planting, they sent out a survey to the unchurched around Charlotte, North Carolina, with a simple question of, why don't you go to church? And while many of the leading answers were not a surprise, what was a surprise to him was the strength of one of the answers. In fact, it represented one out of, or six out of every 10 people and fell into the second most common response. Here was the response. Churches have too many problems. In his post, He goes on to share that one man in the survey shared, I have enough problems in my life. Why would I go to church and get more? Now, remember, that study was done 30 years ago. A lot's happened since then. In fact, so much has happened in the last two to three years that the world feels like it's not just falling apart around us, but it feels a little bit like it's on fire. So if we were to do a survey like this in our own community with those who don't go to church, how might they answer? Is Jesus-like love something that we as Christians are known for? And to be honest, we don't know for sure, but we might have some guesses. However, no matter what we think the answer to that question would be, the cool thing is that God wants us to become more and more like Jesus, especially in how we love. And if that's the case, it also means that God invites us, he empowers us, he encourages us, and he equips us to love more and more like Jesus. And if we're willing to let him work in us and transform us, he can change the world. Not because of us, but because of who God is. So let's look at what Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35. This is right near the beginning of Jesus' after-dinner conversation with his disciples. Here's what Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why does loving more and more like Jesus matter? Because by this, all people will know you're my disciples. Now, I got to pause here. I remember reading this a number of times and, and functionally doing this. I was putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. I heard this and believed that the focus of what Jesus was saying here was about proving to others that I was a disciple. It felt like the focus was on me. But when we begin to read it like this, we forget who Jesus is talking to here. These are Jesus' closest disciples, the ones who've been with him for three years, sharing meals, road trips, fishing trips, campouts, prayer times, and intense moments of ministry and even conflict. They knew they were Jesus' disciples. And from the way that Jesus talks with them, even in this section, not just calling them servants but friends, there's no doubt in Jesus' mind either. Jesus' focus isn't on the disciples proving themselves to be genuine disciples. Jesus' focus is on everyone else. It's about those who don't know what Jesus' love is like. Why does loving more and more like Jesus matter? Here's the first part of our intertwined answer. Jesus-like love is the engine to God's mission to reach a world that is far from him. And if we're followers of Jesus, we have to recognize that is who we were. We were a part of the world that was far from him. And now as recipients of God's amazing love, though we struggle at times and, and sometimes even run away from Jesus, we are also getting deeper and deeper tastes of just how good and loving God is. Jesus came into the world to pursue love and even die for each of us on the cross, taking our sin, that deep-rooted selfishness and consuming self-interest. And he took that on himself that we might have new life and freedom in him, both now and forever. Jesus' mission was a rescue mission, and it was born out of a heart for love for all of us because we cannot save ourselves from our sin. And what's crazy is that we who have been saved by Jesus get to share his love with others as we join his rescue mission to a world that desperately needs saving. See, God's love, as astounding as it is, it drives the mission forward. However, the mission of Jesus isn't simply about saving us from things, saving us from sin now and the consequences of sin and eternal separation from the goodness of God. It's also about what he's saving us into. So the question is, what is he saving us into? Hold on to that question for a minute. Or so, as, as we look at this question of, again, why does Jesus like love matter with the second intertwined answer? So we're going to jump ahead here. Let's jump ahead to the middle part of Jesus' conversation with his disciples in John 15, 9 through 13. Again, this is Jesus speaking. He says this to his disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, 
and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, and this is going to sound like a repeat again, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, once again, we hear Jesus telling his disciples to love just as I have loved you, emphasizing again the critical and foundational nature of Jesus-like love in spiritual maturity. However, there's a difference here between John 13 that we just looked at and John 15 here. Because here, Jesus doesn't talk about the mission of reaching people who are far from God. Instead, he talks about the Father. See, verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. See, here Jesus hints at the second intertwined answer to the question as to why loving more and more like Jesus matters. And it's this. Jesus-like love reveals what God is like. See, Jesus-like love isn't only the engine of the mission of God, seeking or pursuing him, pursuing those who are far from him. Jesus-like love, lived out by the Spirit at work in us, also reveals what God is like, both to those who already have a relationship with Jesus and those who don't. And Jesus wants everyone to really know what his Father is like. And you could go, okay, where am I getting that from? It's from what Jesus says in John 14, 6. He says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus wants people to come to the Father. He wants them to come and know him. It's a part of salvation. And it's this, not that we are not only saved from sin, but we're brought into a new family with a new and unfathomably good father. One better than any earthly dad we could ever imagine. We are saved to have a renewed and restored relationship with God. And guess what? We are saved into a new family, one where biblically loving one another in community reflects God's love and mission to the world. And this is so important to Jesus that in John 17, 22 and 23, he prays this over all his disciples, his disciples that are with him at that time, and anyone who comes after them, which includes us. It says this, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, there's a so that here, so the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So let's, let's pull this all together. Why does loving more and more like Jesus matter? Jesus-like love matters because it is built on knowing him and his love intimately which leads to the love that flows out of us being his love and not our own. Jesus-like love matters because it is the engine of God's mission to reach the world that is far from him. Jesus-like love matters because it reveals what the Father is like. 
And these, the last two, are so intertwined because when we are on God's mission together, how we love one another and the world reveals to the watching world what God is like. At the same time, knowing how God loves us and pursues us, both individually and as a community, drives us to want others to know Jesus because we have tasted of his goodness and joyfully join in God's mission to bring the world back to himself. These are inseparable from each other because the moment we separate them, we lose the reality of both God's love and the joy of joining him in God's mission. So with that in mind, let's go back to the question of what does Jesus-like love look like? Now again, there is no way we could fully answer that this morning. In fact, entire books have been written to answer that question. Uh, and by people I, who are way smarter than me and get way more time to that. Yet, one thing is certainly true about the way that Jesus loves. It is very different than we expect and it is most definitely radically different than how we naturally love. So let's just, we're going to do a quick snapshot of how Jesus loved, and then we're going to close with, with an application this morning. So here is the first snapshot. Jesus-like love is other-centered. Now, in the most well-known verse in the Bible, and for good reason, John 3.16 reads this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, this is an incredible kind of love. It's a pursuing love. It's an other-centered love that freely gives for the sake of others. And we see a similar theme, just building on this, in 1 John 4.10. It says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, God isn't just waiting around. He's active. He's intentional. He's sacrificially loving, even towards those who don't deserve it. See, Jesus, speaking even of himself in Mark 10, 45, says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he does. See, Jesus' most glorious and victorious moment on earth is the exact opposite of what we would define as glorious. His most glorious moment is his death. He died not for himself or for anything he had done wrong, but for us, the ones who rightfully deserve to die for our own sinfulness. And it had nothing to do with how great or how deserving we think we are. In fact, it's exactly because of how undeserving we are that reveals just how deep God's love is. Now think about this for a second. We might be willing to give up our lives for a friend, or especially for our son or daughter. But what about giving up our lives for someone who hates our son or daughter to the point of wanting to kill them? Would we be willing to die for them? It, Jesus did. And he did so willingly. See, this is the grandness of the love of God. 
And we started with this because it shows up in every area of Jesus' life, including these next few examples of Jesus-like love that we're going to look at. But, you know, we got to acknowledge something. Sometimes the grandness of Jesus' death for our, on the cross for our sin and us being adopted into God's family, it, it feels really hard to relate to, doesn't it? After all, most of us, we're not, like we haven't experienced love in this way and we're not necessarily asked to love in this way. So it leaves us with a question, right? What does Jesus-like love look on the ground level, so to speak? Here, here's another one. Jesus-like love leans into relationships even with those who are hard to love. Now, let's consider just a few of the groups of people we see Jesus interacting with throughout the first five, four books of the New Testament. And here's the question we need to ask as we consider this. How did Jesus interact with these very different groups of people? How did Jesus interact with his disciples, which includes Judas who ultimately betrays him? Or to the crowds who come to him to be healed? Or the bad people that are dubbed sinners and tax collectors, or the children, or the women, or the, the lepers, or the Samaritan woman, and even the Pharisees who ultimately hatched the plot to have Jesus killed. And while Jesus spends different amounts of time with each of them, when we pause to consider it, we see Jesus repeatedly leaning into relationships engaging people where they're at and inviting them to know him and through him to know the love of the Father. So here's just a few snapshots, right? Let's start with the 12 disciples themselves. Here's a description of these guys in, in Matthew 10 too. It's literally just a list for the most part. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Okay, there's a description there that seems a little out of place, but there's a description. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. Oh, another description there. That's kind of weird. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. See, Remember, these are the 12 guys that Jesus spends three years pouring his life into. He was intentional with, the guy, with these guys. And like a, a close group of friends would, they got to see up close and personal who God is as they hang out with Jesus. But did you catch those descriptions in the group? Those, those weird things that kind of seem to stick out? Included here was Matthew, the tax collector, a.k.a. Matthew, the government official. And Simon, the zealot, a.k.a. dude who hated governments and all things related to it. And we look at that, and then ultimately we see Judas Iscariot who ends up betraying Jesus. Now, with Matthew and Simon, simply because of the nature of their belief systems, which are completely opposite of each other, these guys probably would have been on each other's throats before day end. And yet they spend three years together. And then there's Judas, who Jesus knew was one day going to betray him. Think about the kind of love that Jesus would have had towards Judas day in and day out, 
to share all of life with this guy. And Jesus doesn't hold back his love or care from Judas. He leans in. This is not a normal human kind of love. See, if, I think if we were to put it together our all-star team of people who are going to go show what Jesus-like love is to the world, uh, we likely would not have these three guys on our list. Yet Jesus had these guys as a part of his core group, his friends and disciples. And he leaned into these relationships even when these guys were genuinely hard to love. In the same way, Jesus leaned into relationships with those who the good people wouldn't even dare approach, much less go to their home and eat a meal with. See, these were the people who couldn't hide that their lives were messed up and broken. Yet Jesus pursued and loved them. And to be honest, it startled the religious leaders. Matthew 9:11 gives us a snapshot of this. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, "Hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners?" Or if we were to jump ahead to or jump to Luke 19:1 through 10, we would see the ultimate example of this, right? Where Jesus, and catch this, Jesus invited himself over to stay with a rich chief tax collector someone who would have gotten rich by cheating others out of their money. This, this is Zacchaeus, and a little snapshot of that up on the screen. See, Jesus would step into the lives of people who others simply would not, biblically loving and engaging with those that others would not. He would stay in their homes and not hold back, even if they were strangers. And just as we saw this included the the people that would be maybe the, the bad people, the sinners, the tax collectors, it wasn't just limited to them either. It also included the very people who would eventually look to kill him. It included the Pharisees. See, in Luke 7 and 11, we see Pharisees approaching Jesus to share a meal with them too. And guess what? Jesus, he gladly goes. See, Jesus was the master at leaning into relationships, inviting people into his life to know and experience the love of God. And you go, okay, why? Why? Because Jesus knew we would need to not only hear about God's love, we would need to see and experience it in action too. Jesus, like love, leans into relationships even with those who are hard to love. And again, we've got we to recognize this. If we're loving those who are hard to love, that does ultimately mean that at some point along the way, we will get hurt. And what's our natural response when we're hurt, right? It's to withdraw or put up walls. Block people out because I don't want them to hurt me. Yet, Jesus-like love is different here too. Jesus-like love keeps loving even when it hurts. Okay, this is, this is kind of crazy, but check this out. As Jesus is dying on the cross in the emotional and physical pain that we cannot imagine, Jesus prays something profound for the very people who put him there. 
In Luke 23, 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus could have stepped down from that cross at any time. He could have asked to get out of the pain that he was in. He could have called down wrath on the people around him who were making him suffer. But instead, Jesus looks through the pain, looks through the pain, and still loves them, even praying for them to be forgiven. Jesus loved even when it hurt. And it wasn't just in this moment. In Matthew 23, Jesus is in a confrontation moment with the Pharisees yet again. See, like they've done so many times, the Pharisees have come to trap Jesus in a tricky theological question. And once again, Jesus leaves them speechless. And yet, then Jesus does something that seems strange. He confronts the Pharisees with seven different call-outs about the lives and the hearts of the Pharisees. Now, it seems strange because in our natural pictures of love, confrontation doesn't seem to fit in with what we expect. And we can go, okay, we realize Jesus does it, and it leaves us asking the question, why? Again, Jesus, like love, keeps loving even when it hurts. And so after these seven call-outs, Jesus says this, and he says this starting in verse 37, and listen to the heart here, what, what Jesus, how Jesus even views these people, the Pharisees what's happening in the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now here we hear Jesus' compassion and love for a people who have been and are still running from him. His seven call-outs were invitations and challenges for the Pharisees' good, once again inviting them to look to who God really is. And this isn't normal or natural for us, is it? Because often when things get hard, we want out. Or when we're challenged, we look to prove ourselves right or defend ourselves. But Jesus is focused on others, helping others see God for who he is, even through challenges and through hurt. Even here, Jesus was others-focused and not self-focused. Which is why it's so incredible that Jesus, like love, keeps loving even when it hurts. Now here's the last snapshot we're going to look at about Jesus, like love. Jesus, like love, flows out of intimacy with God. We started here, and we need to end here too. Without without intimacy with God growing and deepening and maturing in our lives, the love that flows out of us will look less and less like Jesus and more and more like us. Now here's a reminder again from John 15, 9. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. See, Jesus himself kept spending time with his Father. His own intimacy with the Father, that relationship of love and dependence on him, was what is revealed to us in and through Jesus. 
Like the vine and the branches, our intimacy with God is what leads to the fruit of Jesus-like love in our lives. And this is why Jesus invites us to abide in his love, especially as it, was, as it is revealed to us through God's very word, the Bible. Jesus-like love flows out of intimacy with God. Now, I'm going to stop there, but it, again, if you want to dig into what intimacy with God is and looks like, as I mentioned before, check out last week's sermon, and you can find it out online. Now, we just hit a few snapshots of what Jesus-like love looks like, but we are far from it. We could go on to include that Jesus-like love looks like humility, forgiveness, hospitality, working to resolution, intentionality, compassion, and more. Here is the application point for this week. Take what we talked about today, those, those four points, as well as this list that I just listed off, and do two things. First, grab your Bible this week and read through the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament. That's number one. Number two, as you read, add to everything we just talked about, that list, and add what we didn't mention. And all of the examples that you see of Jesus loving, even and perhaps especially the surprising ways. In other words, spend your time on your own and even with others getting to know Jesus and how he loves. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come on back up here. And as they come up, I have to recognize it might seem a little strange to end with an application point like that. Because I think sometimes we come and like, we might expect something like this. Go and do exactly what Jesus did. And we do need to go and do what Jesus does. But we can't start sharing Jesus-like love with others if we aren't first getting that love from Jesus. So the best way that I can equip you to love like Jesus this week is to challenge you to spend time with him and be willing to let his love flow through you. See, Jesus-like love doesn't come from doing things that look like the love of Jesus. Jesus-like love comes from abiding, remaining in the love of Jesus. The only do we have to start with is to remain, keep pursuing him, keep looking at him, getting to know him, and watch what the Holy Spirit will do through you. Now, as a personal example, when I do this, Jesus-like love comes out in ways that still catch me by surprise. And it starts by me knowing and pursuing him. Keep getting to know him. Keep looking towards him. And see, the more that we turn to him and depend on him in this way, the more we mature in Jesus-like love. And yeah, God's going to use other people in our lives to help that grow and mature, uh, including hard things. But watch as God grows you. So let's keep pursuing Jesus. And as we do, and I genuinely believe this, I, and I generally, genuinely hope this, I hope that we'll hear stories and that you'll see in your own life stories of how Jesus-like love starts showing up in your life, is shown to you, and is flowing out from you. And I would encourage you, as you see that, one, be encouraged. Because this is not about the end goal 
This is about the journey along the way. This is us becoming more and more like Jesus. And so we want to share stories. Every little step, that is a huge thing. We want to celebrate that. And if you're willing, if you, would even, if you wanted to even share that with the rest of the church, come, come talk to us. We want to celebrate Jesus-like love because it is that important. It is a marker of spiritual maturity growing in our lives. Not because of us, but because of how good and amazing he is. That in mind?